We're building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. Hey, today we talk to Eric in Texas, one of the great writers of today and a man who's never at a loss for words. Eric takes on the whole world, and he takes them on in our podcast today. One of the greatest books I ever read was Bonhoeffer. And I, and I mean, you've written a lot of books, and you probably hear this all the time. But dude, that book, and what, what Bonhoeffer had to go through, how you point out the sort of nexus of, at what point does a Christian stop keeping the peace and start making the peace, even if it includes up to murder of, you know, of Adolf Hitler, uh, where he, watching him wrestle through that, it was so brilliant. And so I just want to start off right with that. What a brilliant piece of work that you did and how real you made Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the angst that he had to go through in Christ. Well, thank you, Ken. I, I got to say, you know, uh, this is not false humility. I never planned to write biographies in my life. That was not my goal. And so now I've written three and I've, I wrote seven men, seven women, and just recently seven more men. Those are like mini biographies, but I never had a goal to write biographies. The Lord clearly set me up to do it. Mm. Um, and I'm not making that up. And it's what happened when you tell these stories is it affects you. So it's made me the man that I am today, trying to speak truth in the midst of a difficult time and saying like, Hey, I don't care what the, the, the stakes are, because look at the heroes I've written about. They literally gave their lives, you know, and we need to be inspired. And so uh, it thrills me that I get to tell these stories. You know, people say the Bonhoeffer book's amazing. Well, it's amazing because his life is amazing. Mm. I just wrote the story. I mean, I hope that I did a good job. But the fact of the matter is that you're working with the raw material of his life and his walk with God. And, you know, when, when he went through that crucible deciding, do I get involved in a plot to kill Hitler? Now it was not murder. You know, the scripture says thou shalt do no murder, but killing David kills Goliath. There's mm -hmm. killing sometimes. When do we do it? When is it right? How does that work? He really did struggle with it. And I think the main thing that I took away from writing that story and writing the story of Wilberforce is that they didn't want to get political. Politics came to them. They said, in order to be a Christian, I have to stand up against these lies that are hurting people. And I find myself in that position now where I think there are things going on and I could be quiet or I could speak up and there's a price. And I, and I think that it's because of Bonhoeffer that I get inspired to speak up when I might be quiet. And I hope that when I speak up, it inspires somebody else to speak up. And that's just kind of the way it works, you know? So I really do believe it was God's plan for, for me to write these books, he had a plan, but it was definitely not my plan. I can guarantee that. Yeah. But, and I want to get into that fighting spirit of yours. You're, you know, you're the Greek Avenger, man. You're the next Alexander the Great. <laughs> <laughs> that's, but, that's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> 
but Bonhoeffer was written with excellence. And I, I'm such a critic of that because I'm, I love excellence. And people say, well, why do you listen to Pink Floyd all the time? Because I like excellence. That's why. And they were excellent. And we in the Christian community have got to start to take pride in being as good as we can. Christian books, Christian music, Christian movies have got to stop being, well, it wasn't good enough to make it in the secular world. So I, I wrote a Christian book. Bonhoeffer is is a top 10 of all time book. And so despite all that other stuff, I really want to point out to people, if you haven't read it, um, what a great way to challenge your faith. Um, now let's talk about Trump because you've been, been in the news a lot lately. You know, you're a very respected author. You've got a great um, podcast, great show. People look up to you, but you haven't been silent about Trump at all. And- I decided to throw my career away <laughs> President Trump. Why not? Hey, why not? No, you know something for me, it's just an issue of principle. I've always felt um, this is just who I am. Right. And if you read my book that we're going to talk about fish out of water growing up, I always, I was always very sensitive. And when somebody's being attacked justly or unjustly, it bothers me. Hmm. And part of what has bothered me over the number of years that Trump has been, you know, in office or whatever was the viciousness uh, with which he was attacked. And I just thought, even if you're right and he's wrong, like you got to cut the guy a break. Sometimes you got to give him grace, but it's almost as though people gave themselves permission to hate, Mm -hmm. including a lot of Christians. They gave themselves permission to despise him. It made them feel good and self-righteous. And I thought, I'm not on that page. Uh, This is a guy who he's flawed. I'm flawed. You're flawed. Everybody's flawed. So why do we act as though he's, you know, infinitely more flawed than all the previous presidents? It doesn't make sense. There's, there's a disconnect. I mean, JFK, his face is on our 50 cent pieces. Uh, there's an airport named after him. He brought prostitutes into the White House routinely. That is unbelievable that while he was president, uh, Clinton did similar things. Uh, LBJ did similar things. So it doesn't make sense to me that people have given themselves permission to despise him. It's certainly not Christian in my mind, even if you don't agree with his policies or something. So I felt a kind of compulsion to speak out. And I thought, by the way, what are alternatives? Would Hillary Clinton be better? I mean, if you don't understand how corrupt Hillary Clinton is and what the policies are that she would put in place, instead of three conservative, constitution-loving Supreme Court justices, we would have three Kagans in there right now. And it's game over for the United States of America. So this is kind of, you know, I kind of got sucked into it. And I just feel like I have to do what my heroes do. If, if I see something, I have to do my best to represent it. And I won't get it right. I'll say stupid things. I joke around a lot. And a lot of times I'll joke and people will take it seriously and they'll mm. print it like, you know, it was uh, like a serious statement when it was meant to be kind of tongue in cheek or something. So I've gotten in trouble that way. But you know, I just have to cast my cares on the Lord, do my best, you know, and keep going. But Eric, I mean, has, has anybody said anything that surprised you? Like, have you been attacked by people that really, um, I don't want to say hurt you, but disappointed you? Like, I can't believe that guy said something. Oh, or- yeah. No, the fact of the matter is that that does hurt when friends don't give you the benefit of the doubt. Or even if they disagree with you, the, the, they attack you and say things and you just... I. I, I think just the older you get in life, the more you experience this kind of stuff. Like I, I think I've had, a, an, an, I, I've been naive because I've been very blessed 
And I, I'm a very faithful friend, very faithful, almost to a fault sometimes where you think like, you know, you need to be more, uh, objective with your friends, but I'm a very fiercely faithful friend. So when I've had friends, uh, turn on me or say, I cannot be your friend anymore. I don't want to be your friend. I'm disgusted with you because you did this or that. I just thought, I don't have a category for that. I don't, I just mm. don't. I mean, if somebody says to me, I hate Trump and uh, I voted for Biden, I'm not going to say to that person, I don't want to be your friend. I'm mm. going to say, of course, I want to be your friend. We're going to disagree on that. But what do I expect? You're coming from a different worldview and you know you don't have the values that I do and I still love you. But people on the other side have given themselves permission to hate to the point where they're just cutting off people that disagree with them. So I've lost friends and it is it has been painful for me. It's been shocking to me to see that and to see people repeat things that are like there's a little bit of truth, but it's basically not true. But they repeat it over and over and over again. And pretty soon everybody knows what happened, except it didn't happen. But they keep repeating it. Mm. People write about it. So I've kind of gotten used to that. Uh, there's not much I can do. It's it, we're living in strange times. Again, we have to understand these are not this is not normal. What we're going through right now is just lunacy. Uh, the world is uh, is is going through some really crazy stuff. And I think we have to do the best we can look to Jesus in the middle of it and do the best we can. Yeah, it's funny. I went through something kind of similar and uh, somebody that I'd really helped out that I consider a friend. I'd actually done a ton of favors for. And then he came out and wrote a, a vicious piece about Senator Lankford, who's on the Promise Keepers board. And I wrote him a very kind email and said, why would you attack Langford like that without at least calling him first? You have his phone number. And then he went on a terror and, and started putting me down everywhere. And, and it just journalism today, man. I mean, if you can't if you don't have the guts to call somebody and risk conflict and actually have a conversation before you write a hit piece on them, especially when you have years of relationship. That, that, see, that's that my issue. It's like you, you've, you've got a if you've got years of relationship don't you have an obligation to give somebody the benefit of the doubt or to, to you know, I, I, at least that's how I was raised. You know, you don't, mm -hmm. you don't, you just don't do that, but there are people that are very emotional and they live mm -hmm. through their fingers in a keyboard. Like they're not, there's no editor. They just s say what they're feeling. I, I don't think that leads to good things. Uh, and I, I'm glad I don't write that much. So, so that I'm saying whatever I'm thinking uh, or feeling. And that's the problem with places like Twitter. But I try not to to single people out. But anyway, that that's where, as I say, we're living in weird times. And I, I just we have to give people as much grace as we can. Man, that's well said, because I think, you know, because of social media. And I said this to Batterson, who we you know were talking to before, who was on your show. And he said you were a really tough interviewer, by the way. He's <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked. Actually, I am shocked to hear that. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about, but I you said you the... kept him on his toes. But good. Uh, good. One okay. of the things that we were just talking about is the fact that with social media, we're still trying to relate to the fact that you can insult somebody without getting punched in the face. Right. Because yeah. for the history of the world, if I wanted to say to, to say the things to your face that right. I say on social media, right. I, 200 years if, ago, I would have been challenged to a duel. If somebody, right? well, that's right. Well, that tells you a lot about where we've come as a culture and it's not good. But if anybody says anything uh, like markedly unpleasant to me on social media, I instantly block them. I will not have it. Like, I'm Is just right? not going to have that in my, oh yeah. Yeah. I probably block thousands and thousands of people because I just, I just won't have it. If, if that's who you are, that, that you, you just want to get your, you know, jollies saying something nasty or snarky or mean. I, I, I'm not interested in, in that kind of uh, 
communication. It's just, it's, it's really immature. Let's be honest. It's childish. It's not, it's not healthy. Okay. So let's turn this to the positive. Um, but, but I, I love New Yorkers, man. I swear people say New Yorkers are rude and, or excuse me, they say they're not friendly and that's not true. No. New Yorkers are the most friendly, genuine people who will tell you exactly what they're thinking at any one time. Yeah. But people from Boston are not friendly. Like I say to people all the time, like if you're walking down the street in New York City and you ask them which way to the Chrysler building, you'll have 27 different people trying to tell you how to get to the Chrysler it's building. True. It's true. very friendly. Yeah. But then you ask, if you get confused and you ask them to repeat themselves, they're like, what are you, an idiot? And they'll all walk away, right? That's New York. In Boston, if you ask somebody which way to a certain place, they'll all just look at you like you're crazy and keep walking. So I, I love New Yorkers. You're a New Yorker. Trump's a New Yorker. And sometimes we got to get over the, this, this, Matt, there's something refreshing about Christians like you, Eric, just saying what you think. Like, th this is what I think. And if I'm wrong, correct me. Well, but I'm I mean, not again, talk that's, the issue. that's we, we've got to be able to, to be more like that. And I think that's what, to me, what's so outrageously refreshing about Trump. I mean, he broke all the categories. We never had a politician who actually said what he thought, uh, who actually kept his promises and said, I said this and I did this. And I said, I just, I thought, when have we ever had anyone that operated like that? So it was just refreshing to have a, a non-politician in uh, in the highest mm -hmm. office. But again, that's another story. Well, that was his problem. You know, he committed the greatest sin in politics. He wasn't part of the establishment. You know, uh, look, there's no doubt about it. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen the last four or five years. So on the positive side, we talked about Bonhoeffer and we talked about the huge impact it had on me when I read it. When it first came out, I read it and thought, who is this? And how do you say the Metaxas? How do you pronounce his last name? Right. And uh, so it's great to be your friend now and actually know how to say your name. <laughs> <laughs> you, tell, tell us some of the people that you've talked to who that book has impacted, because it's got has to have been huge. I mean, it made you a national name. Um, it it did. It did. And I I can say again, that was emphatically God. I had no clue. I just wanted to get it done. It was a very painful process writing it. I had to switch publishers. I tell the story, painful story in my, uh, my book miracles, uh, because it was a miracle associated with it, but it was really painful. Um, writing, it was really hard. Uh, I was just on this deadline and then the publisher reneged and it was, re it was really just very painful, but God made it clear to me he had his hand on this book, miraculously spoke that to me. And I, I just clung to that in the middle of the pain. And when my life changed as a result of that book, I thought, well, mm -hmm. there's God. Because what, what, you know, I just was trying to do my job, try to finish the book and move on. And God had other plans. And so, yeah, I, I cannot tell you how many times I have been places where people say that book changed my life. And I think there's no way for me to be equal to that. I am totally humbled by that because it wasn't really my brilliant idea to write it. I just did my best, but God had the plan. And let's be honest, it's Bonhoeffer's life. Bonhoeffer's life is just so beautiful that when you tell it, um, people are going to be affected. I was affected by it. And so I feel part of it is that I feel like God called me to write it prophetically for such a time as this, because we're living through similar things right now. And I think people recognize that, you know, the gaslighting, the, the craziness, the, the state trying to take control of people's lives and to, mm -hmm. to, to, to push the church around. And, and that is happening. And I, when I wrote the book, I had a prophetic sense of that. Um, so to see it happening right now, I'm not, not happy about that, but I do see God's hand in causing me to write that book. There's no other way for me to see it. I, I know it was God's, uh, 
leading in my life. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, I'm wrestling through now. We're seeing one and a half million babies a year in America torn apart limb from limb in the womb. And then we have people saying, well, I can't, I'm going to vote for the guy who stands for abortion because the other guy says mean things. Yep. And it, that's what happened. You look at Bonhoeffer and you're like, where, if we really believe abortion is murder, how can we treat it so cavalierly as if, well, it's just, there's a lot of issues. No, there's not. People don't, people don't believe it's murder. People don't. I mean, look, there are people, uh, again, I'm not going to, I don't want to mention names, but it is a stunning thing to me that this is not a litmus test. I don't care what you think of Trump. If the guy is adamantly pro-life, how do you not vote for that man? I don't I don't really get it because he's not blowing smoke. He got three people on the Supreme Court that are originalists that could overturn Roe v. Wade. He he spoke at the March for Life. He was astonishingly pro-life. Now, this is a philandering, thrice married New York billionaire playboy obviously had a change of heart in his life because, you know, when you get elected, you don't need to do that kind of stuff. You can just say stuff, whatever, but you, you don't need to be all in. He was all in. And I'm in awe that there are Christians who can never articulate why they allow themselves to hate him. And, you know, I read on social media every day, people say he's the most unchristian thing. They're just sputtering. They're not saying anything. They're not explaining what it is that he's doing or whatever. They just have an emotion and they really don't know uh, how to channel it into anything logical. It's just, I'm angry. I hate him. And if you don't, I hate you. That's not an argument. And that Mm. led us to where we are now, which is, you know, on the verge of destroying the greatest nation in the history of the world. So, um, I'm I'm um, I'm baffled. I'm baffled by people not understanding their their duty as Americans to vote rationally, to think about the future, to think about children are going to inherit these policies. They're going to be affected by these policies. Uh, All of this stuff matters. But a lot of people don't. They act kind of like I I can. I don't need to be logical. I just I just hate somebody. So I'm not going to vote for him. And and to me, um, that's a dereliction of duty for the way I see it. Yeah. And, you know, since this is, you know, podcast is strongly associated with promise keepers. It's such an interesting thing because I do think that we've talked about the lack of manhood and, and, and bravery in culture and society and masculinity on its very self is the ability to risk conflict and to reason out why you think the way you do and talk it through. Um, and when we see so many people who are passive aggressive, that's just a lack of true masculinity. Um, there's, there's no doubt. Look, we've been awash in this since the sixties. Let's face it. I mean, uh, the, the, the culture has, uh, in many ways changed since then. Uh, it's the first time that we started to deify the youth. You know, every culture in the history of the world says wisdom and gray hair. That's what we want. Something happened in the sixties where we flipped it. And it's almost like the French revolution. You know, you sort of, uh, you start to look at, um, it, it's a different worldview, I guess, is, is the point. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the worldview that says the youth are inherently innocent and have wisdom. Well, they might have an innocence to them, but they have just as much original sin as the oldest, crankiest person you've ever met. And they don't have wisdom. And our inability to see that and kind of, you know, giving ourselves over to the spirit of the age, it's resulted in disaster for families, disaster for uh, communities of faith. I mean, on every 
level, on every social indicator, it's been disastrous. And people don't want to really deal with it. But, uh, you know, the sexual mm. revolution, it's hurt people. It has hurt women. It has hurt women terribly. It's hurt children terribly. And these are facts. These are facts. This is not I like or I don't like. These are these are just facts that this stuff hasn't worked. And so uh, traditional masculinity, uh, a biblical view of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, you know, those things, God gives us those things for our sake because he loves us. And so if we turn our backs on it, which we've effectively done, uh, we suffer. And so right now the culture is suffering. Yeah. And the victims of the sexual revolution were women. I mean, the idea of gratuitous sex does not help women at all. It's, it's a, no, I mean, of course it doesn't help men either, but it really hurts women. And that's always the way it is. Right. And then you tell women, well, but you can have an abortion. Well, there are a lot of women that don't want to have an abortion, but they're told they're bullied into it. And if they really had a choice, they would say, well, I'd, I'd rather not do this. I'd rather have the man love me for the rest of my mm, life. Amen. But, but since he's such a shallow, selfish bum, I guess I'll have <laughs> to go and get it taken care of. You know, that's where we are. And we're not calling these men out and saying, you need to man up, be a man. Do not sleep with someone unless you want to marry them and love them for the rest of their lives and love yeah, your kids right. together. You know, kind of I basic. Think I think it says that somewhere in a book I have. Yeah. Um, and that's actually why, you know, promise keepers this time around, we're massively and strongly pro-life and people have lectured me and said, well, um, you're not supposed to be political. Abortion is not political. Abortion is murder. Just because two political parties decided to take opposite issues, uh, uh, sides on that issue has oh, got man. nothing to do with God's truth. I'm, I have to say that, you know, this is one of those things where the fact that Christians can abdicate this. And as we were saying before, can say like, I'm not going to vote for this guy. I'm like, I just think you've got to forget about who you like or don't like. You've got to think about what's right and true. And to, to enable certain policies, I mean, Biden is, he's, he's worse than just a pro-abortion politician. He's a pro-abortion politician who dares to pretend to be a Catholic Christian. I don't know how that's possible, uh, but we have uh, people somehow thinking that it's possible to do that. And I and I just think, look, you can disagree with me, but you can't call yourself a Christian. You can't say that you're faithful to the word of God and to, to your church. By the way, the Catholic Church is more strong on the issue of abortion than anyone ever has been. Evangelicals are only about abortion because the Catholic Church got there first, because Francis Schaeffer uh, made the point that we need to be with them on this. So, you know, the idea that people are saying, well, I don't care. I don't know how you don't care. Like this is, it's like saying, I don't care about slavery. It's like, I don't care about the, the Nazis uh, persecuting Jews. Like, how do you not care? You have to care. These are the, the, the voiceless. Uh, these are people suffering. You know, we have a voice, we have a vote, we have to care. So um, yeah, that's, uh, we're in a strange place. And Francis Schaefer said, every abortion clinic in the United States ought to have a sign out in front of it that says, continues to stay open by permission of the church. Oh, what a powerful man. statement. And that's uh, it, it is just it's it's hard for us to to make sense of these things. I don't know. I don't I don't know where we go from here. But I listen. So many people I know are praying for this nation and have faith that God's hand is on this nation, that he won't let us go. I believe that. I really do believe that. I think that the Lord is in the business of, of miracles and he's in the business mm -hmm. of uncovering corruption uh, and lying and fraud and crime. And I think that. Uh, those of us who are the remnant, who are really just 
hanging in there. Our prayers, God hears every prayer. And I think we need to, we need to know that and, and stand in it. I think revival is coming, Eric. I really, really do. Yeah, I, I do too. Starts this summer. I really, uh, you know, people say, well, we're in a Romans one moment, Ro- Romans one, where, you know, culture gets so perverse and then given over to homosexuality is where we, we really see that perverseness going and then it's just lost. Well, I don't, I don't believe we're there yet because the church, the real church, not the people who play church is still strong. And I believe God is going to call his true Christians up to be this, the saints that, that rescue a bunch of the other people. I don't believe it's given up yet. I I'm with you, Ken. I really, I do believe that I have great hope because my faith is in God and I know that the Lord can do anything. Uh, and I believe he's going to do some things. I really, I, I firmly believe that. What can I say? Mm-hmm. I do. Hey, so uh, we're gonna take this quick little break and then we come back. I, I want to talk about the fact that when you wrote Bonhoeffer, it didn't just drop out of the sky. You had done a lot of writing and had a lot of career up to that point. And all those things together came to, you know, in one time, moment in time to make you one of the best selling and decorated authors on the planet. So um, right after this. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Promise Keepers is back, and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ. Join us this July at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime, and discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer. So we're talking to Eric Metaxas, uh, best-selling author, highly, highly acclaimed author, I think one of the great authors of today. And uh, have I buttered your bread enough, Metaxas? I'm I'm blushing inside. I I don't want to blush (laughs) on camera, but uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Ken. But the thing with it is, you know, people see um, great success and they think it came overnight. I I heard uh, Malcolm Gladwell give a talk one time where he was talking about um, Fleetwood Mac and how they seemed to come out of nowhere when they made the, the album Rumors and then said, you know, you don't realize that they'd made like 10 albums before that. And then they made rumors all of a sudden everybody thought they discovered this new band, you know? And, yeah. and uh, you, you know, you seem like you dropped out of the sky with Bonhoeffer, but dude, you were like the voice of the veggie tales. You wrote for veggie tales. You did all this stuff yeah. before you made it. 
I struggled. I mean, I'll be, I, I, I've told the story many times and um, I'm sure I'll tell it in my next book. I mean, the, the book that just came out, was called Fish Out of Water, which culminates in my, around my 25th birthday, I, I accept Jesus. But the next book uh, takes me from there, you know, into uh, more recent times. And until Bonhoeffer, I'll be honest, life was really tough. I struggled horribly, bitterly. Uh, I had a lot of serious depression and chronic fatigue syndrome and just couldn't get anything to happen. And it was no fun. I mean, I was in misery a lot of that time. I never lost my faith ever, but you know, I was a lot of times I was like, Lord, please help me. And it was, it was painful. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a kid and it was a lot of years of, uh, of, of really, really struggling, you know, and not, not that it hasn't continued to be a struggle in some ways there, there, there's just all kinds of stuff, but the Bonhoeffer book, uh, it enabled us to get out of debt and it really changed everything. But up until then we were, uh, it was tough. I mean, I, I've, I've, as I said, I've told it many times, it was, it was a lot of suffering and and misery and, and asking the Lord, when's this going to end? Because I'm, you know, I, you've given me these talents and things and I want to use them for your glory. And it really wasn't until, you know, about 11, 10 years ago, uh, that things, things kind of changed. Yeah. I mean, and so then you've written all these books since then. And, and as I was saying to you before, Luther, um, he's one of those characters that people don't really get, you know, people see Luther as this great reverential, uh, religious guy, when in fact he was a foul mouthed, angry, um, kind of flip the middle finger at the establishment kind of guy who's a revolutionary. I think we need more guys like that today. Well, yes, uh, I have to say that, you know, you can go wrong on both sides. You can just be a maniac, uh, but you can also be so buttoned up that you don't do what needs doing. And in my bon- in my Bonhoeffer book, I talk about all the people who opposed Hitler who were too fussy to get their hands dirty and really oppose Hitler in the way that needed to be. They kind of let him rise in power and they didn't check his his rise when they could have because they thought, I'm too good to do that. I'm not going to dirty myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have people like that today that they say, well, I've got to play by the rules. And you think, well, if people are dying, you need to think about your rules a little bit because mm-hmm. sometimes uh, you know, you have to do something heroic and a little crazy because the situation calls for it. And when you're dealing with real evil, when you're in the midst of a, of a war of some kind, you have to think about that. What, what does God want me to do right now? Bonhoeffer was asking that, Lord, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? And changing uh, as time passed in terms of how he approached things until he finally decided, I'm going to get involved in this plot, this political plot, which most Christians said, oh, we can't do that. And he thought, what, what do you mean we can't do that? We're going we're gonna to let the pagans do it? Um, what, what, what am I missing here? So I think people, many people are theologically fussy uh, and religious in the negative sense, uh, rather than really saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Um, they have somehow they've allowed their their categories to get uh, confused that they say, well, I can't be political or I can't be this. And, and that's not what it means to walk with God. Uh, you know, we look at people again like David, <laughs> you know, David slew Goliath. Uh, with a stone, we don't say, well, that was David before he got saved and he got, you know, polite. Um, it's uh, There's a time for th- for things like that. And we have to do it with wisdom, of course, but we're living in times a lot of people just don't, they don't see it. So Luther is, he's a heroic figure. Uh, and I have to say, in many ways, there are strange parallels with Trump. It's really weird because 
he had an ability, Luther had an ability to speak with the common man like he was one of them, even though he was brilliant, but he had the ability to connect. And a lot of the common men and women thought nobody's ever spoken for us before. We've been alone. There's never been anybody who's been our voice. And I think in many ways, Trump was like that. And for him, Twitter was kind of like what, what the printing press was for, for Luther, where mm -hmm. Luther had the ability to go straight to the people, which was never possible before. Uh, and to speak directly to them and in a sense to create this connection with them and to fly around the, the elites uh, who were who'd been controlling everything until that point. Uh, and it resulted in kind of an earthquake. So but it, it, it is fascinating to look at history and, and see uh, see these things and also to see that Luther had friends telling him, you know, effectively what people around Trump were telling him, like, you shouldn't be tweeting at two o'clock in the morning. Don't say this. Don't say that. And it's not that they were wrong. They might have been right. But it's interesting to see the same struggle that his friends wished he wouldn't do this and wouldn't do that. And, uh, you know, to some extent, he couldn't help himself. But it, it, it's bizarre. When I was writing the book, I was uh, aware that there are these odd uh, parallels. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you, you ever have those times when when God suddenly leads you through a Bible study? Like you, you open up scripture and the Holy Spirit just, boom, starts to lead you through different things. And I had one of those moments in Malachi chapter two. And, you know, God says, look at my servant Levi. There was always wisdom on his lips. And he, he led so many people to righteousness. And you go, well, who, who exactly was Levi? And you go back and read. And the only thing we really know about Levi is that he was the son of Jacob. He was one of the patriarchs. The Levitical tribe was named after him. But, but why? Well, there's only one story about Levi. So God says, look at him. Look what his example he is. And by the way, I'm going to only tell you one thing from his whole life so that you know. Levi is the guy that when the guy rapes their sister Dinah and the the, the father and son come and, and they sit down with Jacob when the boys are out in the field and they say, you know, gee, um, I liked raping your, your daughter so much. Now I'd like to marry her so I can rape her whenever I want. And Jacob is now negotiating because Jacob's kind of an infamous coward. And the boys all come in from the field and they're furious. Why are you negotiating with this guy who raped our sister? And finally, Levi goes, you know what? We're cool with that, but you have to get circumcised. So three days later, after the whole town's been circumcised and they're too sore to fight, Levi and one of his brothers, who doesn't get named, go in and they kill every guy in the town. And then he grabs his sister, who's a prisoner of this guy, and brings her home. And as, after he brings him home, Jacob goes, what did you do? You've brought, brought trouble on me. And Levi looks at his father and says, should we have let him treat our sister like a whore? That's all we know about Levi. God names his entire tribe after him. And he says, look at my boy, Levi. That's my boy. Every time we see people in scripture who made a difference, they, they upset the apple cart. They make everybody around them wrong. They're people who do things. Right now, the church is in many ways held hostage by do-nothing intellectuals instead of people who that, are out there fighting and doing I am, stuff. I'm totally with you on that. I'm, I'm, again, the parallels with the Bonhoeffer story. I mean, you had these people seeing this criminal rising. This is Hitler, of course. But they thought, well, we're, you know, we're good Germans. We can't really, we can't get our hands dirty. Uh, mm. And you think, you must not care about other people because there are people whose lives are going to be destroyed. People are going to be murdered and tortured. Mm. If you know that you're going to get your hands dirty. And um, I think right now we have a lot of people in the church that they've gotten a bad idea of theology. They, they think Christianity means 
head knowledge and having it. It's almost like you can worship an idol of perfect theology instead mm, of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, that's dead on. And I think that that some people are there. They just their their goal is not to get dirty. And I think, well, Jesus got real dirty. He came to this scuzzy, death ridden, sin sick planet to die for us. He got dirty. Uh, if he really wanted to be holy and untouched, he could just stay in heaven and never touch. That, that's the model. Jesus is our model. And, um, you know, when Jesus flipped over the tables and you just think like, can you, if, if somebody did something like that today, we would all say, that's not, not very Christian of him. It's not very Christian of him. What's the matter with him? Like he didn't need to do that, did he? Well, Jesus did it. So, Or if he called his opponents disciples of hell. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> right. I mean, he used so much colorful language that was insulting. I read something today. Oh gosh, where was it? It was like Luke, oh, I'm thinking of guessing like 1144, something like it was like something like that. And I, I literally don't think I had ever seen it before. And I was stunned because it's in the gospels. I thought I'm sure I've seen everything here a million times. It was, it was one of those things like he, he says, you know, your whitewashed tombs or whatever, but it was, mm -hmm. he says, you are like unmarked graves that people mm. walk over you and don't know it. Mm. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that before. And that's clearly a, an insult. Like it's a really harsh insult um, that your tombs, that your, your hidden death and, but, but, but you're not advertising it and people have no idea of what they're encountering when they get near you. It's death. And I, I, I was kind of astounded that I hadn't seen that before. It's not particularly famous, but um, yeah, Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to be nice. He wasn't trying to be mean, but he wasn't trying to be nice either. Yeah, he said, don't, don't say I came to bring priests on the world. I came to set the world on fire and how I wish it was already a light. I was in a Bible study with a bunch of Christian leaders and there were some liberal um, theologian type pastors there. And uh, the one guy was saying, you know, Jesus some, come, sometimes comes off as a bit mean, but I choose not to pay attention to that. And I, and I read that scripture to him and he goes, you know, that's just not the Jesus I believe in. And I said to him in front of these 50 guys, they said, then you don't believe in Jesus. You believe in an idol called Jesus. That, that, that's exactly correct. That's mm -hmm. exactly correct. I mean, wow. It's like he's more holy than the Jesus of scripture. But isn't that what Bonhoeffer went through? I mean, we talk about yeah. Luther, what a, what a, what a, um, explosive character he was and yet his people the lutherans were the ones that betrayed the church yeah in hitler's day they're the ones that wouldn't stand with bonhoeffer they all went off to seek their comfort yeah and to be okay with the guy who was murdering people and they bonhoeffer wanted to keep their jobs i mean it's that simple they wanted to keep their jobs the pastors and so they said i'm not going to say i'm not going to speak up or i'm not going to whatever you know sometimes you have to lose your job uh sometimes you have to lose your life how do we, how did we get to where we don't realize that that's what the scripture says. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I was in a, I was in a, um, uh, doing a radio interview with, um, someone, a state Senator, uh, in, um, in Pennsylvania, while I was talking to him, he got a phone call from president Trump. This is like back in December, I think. And so I got to have a conversation with president Trump on my radio program. Oh, that's cool. And I was, uh, excited. And I was thinking that, you know, I really did believe and do believe that the election was not clear and that we needed to have clarity and transparency. And I said something like, I said, you know, I'd be happy to die in this fight. And what I meant was like Nathan Hale or any patriot, you say that I'd be willing to give my life for liberty, 
for election integrity, for all of these things that are crucial to to the American uh, style of self-government. People have died, many, for the way of life that we have. And, and everyone interpreted that, like, how can you say something like that? And almost like I'm saying, like, I'd be happy to kill in this fight, which I didn't say. I said, I'd be happy to die in this fight. But we're, we're living in times that, you know, m- men uh, are, have become so feminized that the thought of conflict, of war, of being a warrior, all of these things that are, are fundamental to God's idea uh, of, of what it is to be a man. It doesn't mean we're looking for war, but it does mean that we're willing to die uh, in, in a fight for what is right. I think of all the heroes in history. And so when I said that, it was kind of a, like a basic thing, but the response to it stunned me. Uh, people mm-hmm. wrote and wrote and wrote as though I had like, that's over the top language. And I thought, what do you mean? If I feel like my nation is being stolen by crooks, how would you do it? Would you just say, well, you know, that happens sometimes. Um, I'd like to think I'm wrong, but I'm saying that the idea that people would say you shouldn't talk like that, or you shouldn't even say that. I thought, wow, when would you say it? I don't know. It's kind of amazing. Hmm. Well, man, as we wrap up, um, I would encourage a lot of people out there to get fish out of water. Um, because there's a lot of people with this pandemic and whatnot who have been out of work, who are trying to find a new way of making things. When I look at you know someone like you, you're that classic American story of someone who busted his can, busted his can, persevered, never stopped trying, and then bam, it, it almost came so fast. You know, you were eating at Chick-fil-A one day and you were having fancy steak dinners the next, which, by the way, you owe me a steak dinner the next time I'm in New York <laughs> now that you guys are hoping to. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to work that out. I'm going to look into a payment plan. I got to be honest with you. Uh, the, uh, the the fact is that, I mean, no joke, I, I went through hell. People don't know, like we couldn't pay the rent. It was It was really, really tough. And I think all I can say is I did keep my eyes on Jesus. I mm. did know that he's real. He's not an idea. He's walking with us. He knows what we're going through. He's not out there for, he's not out there for humanity. He's there for you. And for me, that's humanity. We are humanity. And so Jesus walks with us and he wants to have that relationship with him. And so in the middle of those trials, I just knew that whatever God did would be, it would be okay. Even if he didn't give me what I wanted, it would be okay. Even if I never had success would be okay. We just have to have that attitude. And I, and I did, you know, it went on for years and years. Again, people don't know, but I, I just would say to people, you've got to know Jesus is real. You've got to know when the scripture says, be anxious for nothing, be anxious for nothing. He's telling us straight up, I do not want you to worry. Mm. I want you to tell me your problems. I care for you. I love you. I want to help you. I want to walk with you. Don't fret. And we kind of think like, yeah, but, but, but there's no, but when it says be anxious for nothing, it means for nothing. It means that when things go wrong, take it to Jesus, take it to him in prayer and, and, and don't even feel like, well, I've got to labor in prayer. Then you're giving yourself more anxiety about prayer. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I love you. Bring it to me. Our heavenly father says, I love you. Bring it to me, your Abba father. We need to live that way, that our faith is real. It's not just this thing. It's real. It's raw. And and God walks with us and he wants to give us hope. And uh, I didn't, I can't say that I believed it as strongly as I wished I had. I wish I could go back in time and say, Hey, Eric, do you really believe this? I think you believe it, but you could believe it more. Couldn't you? Yes, I could have. And I wish I could, uh, I could go back and whisper that to my, my former self, but Mm. I'll whisper it to the audience. It's real. 
scripture's real, God is real. There's there's no, you know, uh there's no gradations. He is truth, he is real, and uh and that's that. And you've seen that because it's it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Yeah, but it's a command with command with a promise. And yeah. then the peace that surpasses yes. all understanding will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. You were racked with depression and insecurity, you said. Now you're not that guy. Now you're out. You're the guy that's uh, boldly standing for some against a lot of people. I'm fooling people into thinking that I've got it all together. If you can, if you can fake authenticity, man, you've got it made. No, I mean, uh, I I do know that uh, God. If you can fake authenticity, God, I like right? That. No, <laughs> Eric Metaxas. Next quote. I know. No, yeah, that that's a quote <laughs> I've I've said a few times because it's so stupid. But I like to joke around in case people don't know. But the fish had a water book is full of funny stuff, like really funny stuff that really happened to me growing up in a Greek Orthodox, Greek immigrant community, uh, just crazy stuff that you, you can't help but find it funny. And it's all true. I don't exaggerate. I hate when people exaggerate, but it's my story. And it culminates in Jesus becoming the meaning of life, showing me, you know, if you want to know the meaning of life, I'm the meaning of life. But it was a total miracle. And I didn't I did not see it coming. And uh, I, you know, I hope that it will bless some people uh, who, who need that, uh, who, need to, who need to know it's real. It's real. It's not for me. It's not a philosophy. It's, it's real. Now, how perfect is it that as we're getting ready to close out, you're sitting in New York and we can hear horns in the background. It's very New York. <laughs> it's New York. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's sometimes it's like really loud sirens and it just wrecks everything, but you know, we have to do our best. Yeah. It's part it's of the culture, real. man. It's real. Yeah. If you want to have that good of restaurants, you have to put up with horns and sirens. <laughs> yes, and half of them are still not closed, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> love you, brother. I love you, too. I'm grateful for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.